Welcome to the Energy Disruptors podcast. I'm Alexander Hogevin Ryder, and I'm here today with Inderpreet Wadhwa to talk about uh, his journey and and what he has lessons has for uh, climate tech startups all over the world. Um, so, firstly, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I think you you really are an inspiration for for entrepreneurs um, everywhere. And uh, so, I'd love for you to start with kind of uh, telling us more about your journey as an entrepreneur and kind of how the space. The climate tech space has evolved uh, since you first joined. Great. Thanks, Alex, uh, for having me. And I had an accidental journey of entrepreneurship, uh, not planned. Um, in terms of just my background, I grew up in India. I studied electronics engineering from a university in Punjab. And uh, always as a child growing up with Western influences, I wanted to find the first opportunity to, to leave India. Um, and I learned uh, software out of interest because there was a huge demand for Y2K programmers in Silicon Valley. And I got a job with Oracle Corporation uh, right out of college and I moved to the Bay Area. And I spent almost uh, 12 years in Silicon Valley, uh, mostly with Oracle, building software applications in CRM, e-commerce, and uh, finance uh, space. What is interesting is my last uh, years at Oracle, there was a huge shift from licensed software to software as a service model, which I think everybody today uh, knows nothing about licensed software. Everybody's used to provisioning their software applications on the internet or on their mobile phones. Little do you know that uh, in the 90s, that was not the case. And uh, when we start moving towards the service model, the example I used to share with the uh, customers of software was that if you wanted to provision electricity, would you build a power plant in your backyard or just get a connection with PG&E? And of course, you know, everyone says like, yeah, you know, get a connection from PG&E. So like, so why on earth do you want to build your own data centers by you want to buy your own infrastructure for uh, interconnect and you want to hire expensive administrators to manage their infrastructure. Why would you not just provision an application as a service? Little did I know that uh, the next journey I would embark on would be actually building power plants. Um, so uh, I had a, a occasion to uh, come back to India for some family matters. And in that context, um, I got introduced to a bureaucrat who started talking to me about his travels to California and they were doing some research in biofuels. And I said, hey, uh, why aren't you doing anything in solar? Because this is the time when Sun Edison was um, starting in a big way to do rooftop solar uh, all around mm. the US and, and also in California where you had high um, you know, costs or tariffs for time of day use in the afternoons. And right. that's when solar actually works really well. And I was in India in, in the peak months of the summertime, and I would read news about people dying from heat stroke. And I said, like, hey, you know, why not convert all this heat into electricity and, and serve the people? And, you know, this individual said, hey, that's a great idea. We don't know much about it. Can you tell us more? So one conversation led to another, and ultimately, Azure Power was born. Uh, but it was literally by by accident that I decided to build a, a renewable energy company, which ended up being uh, one of the largest uh, solar power players in the world. 
Yeah, and I mean, thanks to to innovators like yourself. I mean, the, the world is very different now in, in 2002, 23 uh, versus 2009. Um, so I guess what what's gotten easier and, and what's maybe what's made you gotten harder or what's what's kind of stayed the same in terms of building building a climate tech business uh, from scratch because it's it's different than a software business, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think uh, a lot of things have gotten easier. Some things have gotten harder. Uh, so things that were really hard. I mean, the concept itself was quite hard. Uh, way back in 2009, because when I would meet some of the the most important people in finance and energy space, both in India and in US, and we talk about solar as a mainstream source of energy, people just didn't believe that. In fact, there were a lot of technologies in the solar space as well. There was solar thermal, there was concentrated photovoltaics, there was plain Melinda photovoltaics, and many other technologies that were out there. So people didn't see solar as a mainstream source of energy and there was also the challenge around the production in nighttime in winters in monsoons. so people just couldn't wrap their head around building a, a viable business out of what people used to call infirm power and <laughs> well that's that we've got the long duration energy storage people so that's that's another episode but but keep going yeah but but my you know, and because I was not from the energy industry, I mean, that was also a challenge for me that, oh, you're not from the energy industry. How can you build an energy business? And what what sort of puzzled me was, I said, you are comfortable with coal as a source of firm energy when you don't have the presence of the resource where you have the generating facility. Like you go to a coal power plant, most of them, unless you're at a pithead, you don't have the raw material. Absolutely. And guess what? You may be getting the raw material from Australia, from Indonesia, maybe from the opposite end of the country uh, using a transportation system that is not super reliable. But you're comfortable with that. And you are not comfortable with sun shining every day. I don't <laughs> understand that. Honestly, I mean, it, it was mind-boggling yeah, no, no. mind to me that for as long as humanity has existed on the planet, the sun has shone, but coal has not magically appeared at every pithead, at every plant with the highest quality, with predictability, and every financial institution is happy to take that risk. But they are not willing to take a risk on solar energy, and they call solar as infirm. I'd say solar is firm. Everything else is infirm. Yes. That's where you know you were starting as a challenge, and I think fast forward to 2023, no one considers solar as not a firm source of electricity, right? So people are now building, you know, the entire dispatch centers, the infrastructure on ISTS framework around the availability of solar resources. Green corridors are being built predictably. I mean, there's like 15 minute uh, predictability of solar energy being transmitted. Otherwise, there's a penalty. So you've come Absolutely. a long way from saying like an infirm source of power to a predictable source of power. So I think that's one uh, big shift that I've seen. Second, of course, is the pure economics. And I started this business with a clear understanding of Moore's law. And being in the Silicon Valley, I understood Moore's law. People in the energy sector did not understand Moore's law. They had only seen inflation. So if you go into a tender, into a bid, and you reduce your price from your previous tender, people will say this company will go bankrupt. The first contract I built was 17 rupees 91 peso. 
the second contract was 15 rupees the third contract was 12 rupees 91 paisa all within a span of 12 to 18 months and people were saying this guy has no idea what he's doing this company is going to go under when do energy prices fall they only rise they have not seen a source of energy that can actually move in the opposite direction so i think that was the second big change now nobody questions that oh solar is like the cheapest form of energy or it will continue to be more efficient lower cost of production and this and that so none of that is an issue anymore right so i think those are the two big thing the economics and then the reliability uh, which nobody questions uh, in 2023 yeah but i think i think your a lot of these lessons i think are really pertinent you know if we're talking about let's say you know hydrogen or or long duration energy storage right you mentioned you know 17.9 rupees per kilowatt hour which uh, for non indian listeners that's maybe six times the cost of uh, that coal was at the time yeah. Um, you know, and you also mentioned getting finance, which, you know, unlike a lot of software startups, you know, climate tech startups need a lot of finance. So for people starting new new startups, um, you know, maybe in, in green hydrogen energy storage or waste or water, kind of what would your advice be to kind of tackle these challenge? One, kind of the initial economics and also how do you get how do you get banks or, or other institutions to finance um, what's kind of perceived as a, as a risky kind of uncertain unknown technology? Yeah. I think there are sort of two parts to the way I would answer your your question. You know, one is like, what's the advice to the startups, right? I mean, first of all, just climate tech as a space is extremely important. I think the economies around the world are behind it now. I think when I started in 2009, this was considered as a social experiment. It's no longer considered a social experiment. These are very large commercial opportunities. So I think that's one thing that the startups should think about that when they are embarking on an opportunity, whether it be green hydrogen, whether it be energy storage, what have you, that they must, you know, first, like any other startup, ensure that they are going after a very large market, right? I mean, that's where the success will come. That's where the capital will flow. And the second is really the the unit economics, right? I mean, that's no different in in any business that at the end of the day, while you may have special interest groups or special investment options. But if you're truly wanting to build a world-class scalable enterprise business, you have to sharpen your pencils on positive unit economics, right? Of course, you can think about high growth phase and burning more and this, that. But at the end of the day, if you don't see a positive unit economics business, you are not going to be successful uh, over a long period of time. So I think that that's sort of the first advice that I have. So once you identified the positive unit economics model, you identified the opportunity which is large enough. Then of course, you know, in any new business, you have to start by bootstrapping your business, by looking at venture capital, by looking at other right. forms of equity and stuff. So you've got to get to a point where you can deliver a proof point, which is a fantastic customer with good economics and positive revenues and, and, and whatnot. Right? Well, okay. So, I, I want to pause here a bit because I, I mean, I'm as an angel investor, unit economics is the number one thing I work for, but you said you were selling power at 17.9 rupees a kilowatt hour. So the unit economics didn't work for the customers. So how did, like, how did you, how did you square that circle? I guess is, is right. what I'm trying to get at. So, so I think that there are, there are two questions. One is, was my contract in the month? So the contract mm-hmm. that I signed at 17 rupees 91 is not a commercial contract, but it is still a contract. It is right. in the money. But it made money I, for you. Right. So can I build a very large business at 17 rupees 91 paisa? No, absolutely not. But my vision is 
that my next contract will be lower and the one after that will be lower and lower and lower. So how much capital do I need before I break even with the most expensive source of energy? I don't need to be the two rupee uh, contract in 2009. I only need to be a 10 rupee contract because people right. were burning diesel at 10 rupees a unit at that time. So right, if they're right. burning diesel, they'll be happy to do solar at a lower cost than 10 rupees. Uh, so I just need to have a trajectory on how I'm getting to 10 rupees. And then from there on, you, you take off, right? So, so attacking kind of the most profitable use case uh, to yeah. kind of be more, more generalizable. Exactly, exactly. Right. So that's, that's something that was uh, very important then and it is still important today that you demonstrate that what will it take for you to get there and how much money would you have to bleed or burn to get there and are their investors willing to believe that story and, and back you up on that. Um, is, is one piece. Now, the other piece that you talked about is access to finance. I mean, there's VC money is there, angel money is there, friends, family, your own bootstrapping, all of that is there. Banks typically don't want to take venture risk. So you are not going to get a lot of bank debt in, in those early days. And I think that is one of the problems that I saw then and I see even now. And that is what I'm trying to solve through my next venture, which is Climb Finance is to actually provide infrastructure debt to SMEs or young companies at early stage when banks are not willing to come in as long as the technology being deployed is proven and tested and is generating additional revenue. So I think that is a, is a white space that I think has not been addressed well and the alternative available to startups is to uh, take more dilution and raise more venture money uh, until the banks are willing to bet on. Um, okay, so thanks so much. I think the the comment on on getting those different sources of finance until until you're ready uh, for banks to invest in you is is really crucial. Any other kind of challenges? Um, I'd love to learn more about Climb, but before we go there, any other challenges and uh, kind of potential solutions for for kind of budding climate entrepreneurs you'd like to talk about? I think it's uh, and and this may not be specific to climate, but just entrepreneurship in general is having a complementary team, right? So mm. what you generally see is you have a couple of friends in the same college, in the same cohort, get together and start a business. And guess what? They're all engineers. They're right. all like mechanical engineers and they're trying to build a business in finance. Um, so that doesn't work well. So I always encourage people to find as diverse teams as, as possible and and one thing that served me well is always hire people who are most different and more experienced than you are. And if you're able to attract talent that way, I think you'll, you'll do really well because then you create an engine or a cycle of people that want to hire better and better attract best and best delivers uh, phenomenal results. So I think that's one thing that I've seen there were many other companies who started at the time and as you started uh, with similar ideas, with similar capital structure. Um, but one of the things that worked really well for us was a strong team and a strong culture. So sometimes startups don't focus on that, don't think about that, but that's a big ingredient uh, to, to success. The other thing also I would say is, you know, startups generally are perceived very risky for a variety of reasons. So if you can spend time in eliminating some of the unnecessary risk from the business, right? So because 
you can have many different types of risk. And generally, the startup has a capital risk is one. That's the mm-hmm. most potential risk. Then the product risk is one, right? Now, the third you can think about is the customer risk. Oh, customer risk is something is in your control by and large, and you can eliminate it. And why I say this is, in the solar space, you know, I could go and build a project in Andhra Pradesh. Or I could build a contract with Solar Energy Corporation of India. Right. They're both customers, right? And I think it may seem attractive that Andhra Pradesh will give you a higher tariff because there is less bidding or less competition. But Solar Energy Corporation will give you a lower tariff because there's a lot of competition. But guess what? Solar Energy Corporation is much higher rated than an Andhra Pradesh government. So now, if you run out of money, right? If your product doesn't work, your customer doesn't pay, you're dead in the water. Now, in this case, even if you run out of money, but you have got a customer like Seki who's paying, a bank is likely to give you debt to bankroll that contract. So startups generally don't think about all these things in depth. So I always encourage entrepreneurs to eliminate the risks that are unnecessary or you can eliminate. So you can only focus on a handful of risks and manage them really well. I think, firstly, that's a fantastic point, but it actually leads very nicely into my next question. You know, at some point, uh, you know, the easy utilities, the big countries, the World Bank countries, they've all got their solar. Um, you know, every rooftop in Australia in a fancy suburb in Sydney is going to have have its solar. Um, you know, in wastewater, I talked to wastewater startups that, that, you know, apply the same principle. We're going to only sell to the big, highly ranked um, industrial customers. Uh, but at some point, we got to get this energy transition. We got to get this climate uh, solutions, you know, for everybody, right? We got to get it to the small businesses, the MSMEs, um, ideally even to the individuals. So, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how can we make sure that the energy transition uh, reaches everyone. Yeah. So I think this is like the hardest problem for the world today, right? I mean, what you've just pointed out. Um, how do you get the, I call it the energy transition to the last mile, right? And that is the broadest mile around the world is SMEs, individuals at the bottom of the pyramid, like how do you get them? And and guess what? The challenge is most of these, if you talk about SMEs, you know, they are just barely surviving. So now you all of a sudden say, oh, you should have a compliance officer who tells you your ESG score. Like, how is that going to work? Exactly. exactly. Absolutely not. It's not going to work. You've got to first take care of the basic. You know, it's the Maslow's law of, you know, needs and hierarchy and all of that, right? It, it plays just squarely into this. You can't expect somebody to think about ESG if they can't put a roof on their head, if they can't put food on the table. So you have yeah. to first solve that problem. So how do you solve that problem? You solve that problem by making those SMEs competitive, by making mm. their businesses sustainable, by making their businesses sustainable. And when I say sustainable, that they don't run out of money. Like COVID happened in India. Like a lot of these businesses all of a sudden like went under. Right. Then the government stepped in and they created this scheme to restructure their financing or give them guarantees, give them loans. Also, that's a, that's a good example of what kind of support that these SMEs need. So in my mind, Today, SMEs have limited resources, limited capital, limited growth. How do you help them grow? And their growth is really going to depend on the GDP of the world, the GDP of any country. Mm. Because India has, you know, we've got about 60 million SM, MSMEs. And if yep. they don't grow, India won't hit 5 trillion. 
Yeah. Kind of, oh, and, and you look at almost every developed country, right? They've got that, you know, like at the middle sun in Germany or, or where I come from in Canada, I'm always struck at the number of, you know, thousand person companies producing this, this widget, this part that is able to, to access, you know, good electricity and good infrastructure and good labor. Exactly. Um, so at least, I mean, I'll tell you how I'm thinking about it. And maybe there are other ways to do this as well. I mean, the way I'm thinking about it is you give them access to competitive capital. Hmm. Like large corporations have. If they are treated the same way, they are likely to generate better profits. If Absolutely. they are able to generate better profits, then they want to reinvest those profits. If they want to reinvest those profits, they can think about ESG. And in fact, the capital that goes to them can come with the ESG strings attached. That we will give you competitive capital but you must monitor, you must record, you must provide social inclusiveness. And by the way, by design, they are socially inclusive. Absolutely. They are hiring people in rural parts of the country. They are creating that employment, right? So the fact that well, they are already doing that, they should be recognized for that. They are doing all the installations for these larger projects. They are doing their part in reducing emissions, right? So, but the key is to first make them profitable. First, make them sustainable. Once they are profitable, once they are sustainable, they can focus on ESG. And the focus on ESG has to be in a very subtle manner, sort of included in their day-to-day -day operations. And there's need to be trained, they need to be explained. And a lot of these things, you know, can be done. Well, okay. So, you know, let's say, you know, as a, as a rich person in Canada, I can go get a loan for a petrol car at 2 to 3%. Now, one of my investee companies, Mazi Mobility in Kenya, they're doing electric two-wheelers. So they're, you know, in terms of development, in terms of inclusivity, in terms of climate, it's all there. And yet they're getting money at 15%, right? So my two questions are for you is, how do we get them to get cheaper finance? And two, do we really expect this, you know, startup Mazi Mobility to have the compliance officer to make sure that they're meeting the kind of the ESG guidelines of, of you know, the international institutions that, that expect yeah. it? Yeah, so the first question on how do you get them, uh, you know, effective or sustainable capital, right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, largely a question, again, goes back to the governments, to the financial institutions of the world. Um, you have to democratize access to capital. Mm. I mean, you yeah. know, this is, this is one phrase that we can deliberate and discuss for the rest of this session. Uh, how do you democratize anything? I mean, that's how democracies work, huh? You get people, legislators in a room and you pass a legislation and it gets done. So do we have the political will across the board to do this? Right? I mean, clearly that political will is there when there is a time of crisis. Right? I mean, COVID is a great example. Everyone around the world decided to cut interest rates to zero. But who were the beneficiaries of that rate cut? Absolutely. Right? So, I mean, there were like a lot of these checks and money... Yeah. Well, developed countries had the money to do COVID bailouts, but, but developing countries countries didn't, right? Right. So, so again, but I mean, governments around the world really have to look at this long and hard. You know, even in, in uh, developing countries, right? I mean, we've had, I, I think one of the number one sources of revenue for India are perhaps the coal cess. Mm. Yeah, is is a big source of revenue. Similarly, there's a lot of taxation on oil and gas around the world. You can decide how you want to use that money. If you really want to use it for ESG for 60 million MSMEs, you can. Yeah. Absolutely. But but it's it's a decision, right? I mean, that's why you have to democratize it. 
That's what you do. So you democratize access to capital. The problem is solved. But it's easier said than done. Um, there are many sort of, you know, complications, challenges, political, policy, personal, yeah. implementation, this, that, you know, and then also specialization, right? I mean, you need institutions that are specialized to, to do these things. And most of those institutions, they find it easier to do fewer number of larger deals right. than a very large number of smaller deals. So those are some well, this, of the- this is a huge issue. Like when I was at IFC, you know, at the World Bank, right? Like writing small checks was a huge, huge challenge for us. So how do you write small checks to to MSMEs uh, or to to startups to so that need a million dollar check or a two million dollar check to grow and to scale uh, and to achieve that kind of that unit economics before they they run out of money? Right, and and to me, this challenge is no different than what I embarked on with solar energy. When I said 17 rupees, people said it's too expensive. Come like, you know, 10, 15 years later, solar energy is no longer expensive. So I I am embarking on the next challenge to solve the cost of capital for SMEs. And today it is, you know, whatever, 25, 30% in India. And let's see where it lands in 10 years. I mean, it's not rocket science. You have to look at your cost structure. You have to look at your uh, quality of, uh, counterparties. I mean, it's the same philosophy, the same principle. You don't want to just, you know, write a check for the sake of writing the check, but you have to find the right business models. You have to find the right companies. You have to do the heavy lifting at a competitive cost structure, and then right. pass the benefit down to the to the clients. It's just, it's possible. It's doable. I think there are so many inefficiencies in this value chain that uh, there is a phenomenal amount of improvement that's possible. Okay, so speaking of improvements, the next ten years, uh, you know, India imported two hundred billion dollars worth of fossil fuels last year. Let's say I can take one percent. I say to the Indian government, take one percent of that, two billion dollars, and invest in the next generation technology. Where do you, what technology is you most excited about? Where do you where do you put that money? Oh, uh, you know, I'm I am not a technologist, right? I'm an entrepreneur, so so I would uh, be hard pressed to tell you. Um, which technologies would would make sense. I would rather use that money on business models that can help you scale up existing proven technologies. And I think India as a country generally is not considered as, you know, a a leading indicator for new technologies, but it is a, a large market for deployment of good technologies. So I would look at, so I think one example that you are already seeing in the market today, and I will continue to push the thrust on that is electric mobility. So I think electric mobility is a fantastic opportunity for fighting climate uh, challenges. And uh, there's a lot of demand for public transportation in India, which can be, so you're solving like a, a, a real problem. Um, actually two real problems. One is mobility and the second is climate. And they can all be done at a very competitive uh, manner with where the technologies are, where the cost structures are for batteries, for efficiencies and stuff. And I would take that two billion and create like some sort of a fund that actually creates additionality in deployment of, you know, millions and millions of electric vehicles in the country. So that is one, you know, great way of doing that. The second really would be around better management of the grid infrastructure. So we have a lot of different types of uh, energy sources that are being injected 
into um, the grid, both you know, from north, south, east, west, in the country. And I feel the burden of storage is being pushed onto individual companies. Mm. I don't think that is the most efficient use of, you know, brain power and capital. While you know individuals can do something certain, but if you create like a national storage mission, absolutely, and the national storage mission can take all the hydro potential in India, all the gas potential in India, all the battery potential in India. And find a way to connect all of that potential to the national grid and provide it as a service. Storage as a service is going to mm. be a fantastic opportunity to invest that $2 billion out in. So to me, mobility, storage as a service, I think would be fantastic things to do with that $2 billion. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir a bit here. I think about half my investments are in those two spaces. So, um, so thanks. Uh... Thanks for uh, affirming affirming my my investment decisions there. Um, this has been a great chat. Uh, we've got a lot of great insights from you. I really hope this is this is helpful to, to kind of all the innovators and entrepreneurs and maybe even policymakers who are listening. Uh, last question for you: Who is your favorite uh, scientist or inventor of all time? Um, I would say Steve Jobs. Uh, feel free to why, why Steve Jobs? <laughs> or is enough said? We all know. <laughs> I think he, he just changed the paradigm, right? I mean, it's like changing the game. Uh, you know, there's this saying called like the only constant is the change, right? And and he's really demonstrated it in his life time and time again, you know, with with Apple, with Pixar, then back at Apple. And and I don't even think like anyone was thinking like that. And it's I think it's the same way when I thought of solar energy in India, like no one was really thinking about solar energy in India. And I draw a lot of um, inspiration from how he would, uh, you know, create his own, you know, charter. And then with the result, and it's not like, it's just like shooting from the hip. I mean, he probably has thought through 50 to 60% of a solution in his head. And the remaining 40% is is built along along the way, um, uh, is, is the way you do innovation, right? Uh, many a times, I think, um, uh, you said scientists and in, innovators, right? So scientists get bogged down with 100% empirical evidence. So <laughs> yeah. I don't think scientists can be can be entrepreneurs, but uh, uh, innovators uh, can be can be entrepreneurs. Right. So, but I think, think that's your your diversity of teams that you mentioned earlier, right? If you're a scientist listening to this, you know, go find uh, someone who's maybe a little more risk tolerant to, to, to team up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, this is fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for your insights. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show and, uh, and uh, we look forward to chatting again. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for today. It was so great to hear from Indipreet, not just on his journey as a founder of Azure Power and hopefully inspiring young startups out there, but also uh, the current challenges he's facing in trying to uh, enable climate finance for the masses. Um, tune in next week. We'll be meeting with Julia Sauder, the Executive Director of the Long Duration Energy Storage Council. Um, she's going to walk us through the, the technology and on how we're going to integrate all this renewable energy into the grid, but also she's got a ton of insight uh, with her extensive experience working with regulators, working on all that really hard, annoying stuff that makes climate tech uh, so challenging, but also so rewarding. We'll see you next week. That's all for now. Uh -huh.